And would you bow with me in prayer? Lord, we need these scriptures, and we're so grateful that we have this light of truth in times when truth is so difficult to discern, when the darkness sometimes deceives us and we get off track. We pray today that you'll touch our hearts on this vital subject and teach us contentment, for we pray in Christ's name, amen. I'd like to ask you this morning, how many people do you know that you would consider to be content? People who would consider themselves to be content. Isn't it interesting that we as Americans have more of almost everything than any society that has ever existed in history, and yet so few know contentment? Restlessness is epidemic. With relentless passion, we pursue professional achievement, social position, the accumulation of wealth, and yet that restlessness remains in the core of our being. Somehow, it's never enough. No matter what we're after, no matter how we scramble for it, even when we get it, it's never enough. It's probably with that in mind that the Bible teaches godliness with contentment is great gain. Perhaps the richest person in America is one who's content. As we approach the holiday season, this is a vital warning. I don't know about you, but I'm sure it's true. Our home has been invaded with mountains of catalogs. I went home last night and just looked, literally stacks of catalogs. And all of these represent a billion dollar advertising industry pressuring us to purchase things most of us don't need with money many of us don't have or with money that should be spent on other things. Reflecting on this text, I believe God warns against coveting lesser things in order to warn us and to point us to the only source of true contentment. And it's not going to be in catalogs. It's not going to be in having our dreams come true. As Christians, I affirm for us there's one source of contentment, and that's Jesus Christ. And we're here to be reminded of that truth as we enter the holiday season. The question raised by our text today, if we know Jesus, why are we still looking for relationships and achievements and things to feed the hungers Jesus alone can satisfy? That's a contradiction in our witness to the world that watches us. And so in this context, I want us to study one of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not covet. Given to give us joy. Given to give us freedom. As we prepare for this holiday season. First, I want us to think about why would God give the command, thou shalt not covet? Well, let me define it. Coveting is a philosophy of life best articulated by these words. This is the best definition I've ever found. Coveting is, all I want is a little more than what I have. That's very simple, but we know what it means. All I want is a little more than what I have. Coveting is wanting with a passion what someone else possesses. Jesus warned us, beware of covetousness, for a person's life does not consist in the abundance of things he or she possesses. That's a warning sign from Jesus who loves us and he said, beware. Don't fall for the myth propagated by our culture that your life is going to be found in things. 
So God forbids coveting for many reasons. First and foremost, because it destroys contentment. If we're looking to, this morning to anything or anyone to provide what God alone can give us, that's idolatry, and it's going to lead to disillusionment. It's a myth to believe that as soon as I get my promotion, my new home, my vacation, start a new job, retire, regain my health, find a mate, then I'll be content. Not so, says Jesus. Your contentment's going to be found in me, and as long as you're looking out there for it, you're going to live a life of frustration. God forbids coveting for another reason. It easily gets out of control, and this is where it gets more serious. If we adopt the philosophy I want it all, and I want it now, and I don't care what I have to do to get it, and I don't care who gets in my way, that will lead to violence. Our text says, what causes wars and fightings among you? Is it not your passions at war in your members? You covet, you can't obtain, so you fight and wage war. What's that mean today? Well, we've got a, a wonderful example in the Menendez brothers who killed their parents, why? To get their inheritance early. That illustrates coveting gone wild. That's an extreme case of how it afflicts any person who's in the grip of covetousness. It's so easy to turn to some form of violence against those who stand in our way of getting what we want. Even Christians fall victim to coveting, and this is where violence comes in. We will sacrifice friendships. We'll sacrifice even our families to acquire something we've been deceived into believing will bring us contentment. Perhaps the most serious, we will even put our relationship with Jesus on the back burner in order to satisfy cravings that are best temporary. I wonder how many of us here this morning are on a track where we say, right now, I've got to give it all to get this, and I'll catch up with Jesus later. But right now, my energy, my time, everything I am is going to go to achieving this or acquiring this. That's covetousness, and it's a trap, and it's a, it's a myth. I was moved by the husband of one of the persons killed in the value jet tragedy as he testified in Washington. Maybe you heard his words. His concern was that our nation has gone so crazy with greed that we'll use tragedy for a feeding frenzy of lawsuits. He says, grief almost instantly turns to greed. And his last words were a warning. If we don't control our greed, society will go down the tubes. Coveting leads to violence. It's for these reasons and many more, God forbids us to covet. But I doubt if very few of us doubt the wisdom of coveting. We know that it's wrong, but the real question is, how do we know if coveting is our problem? You know, of all the sermons I preach, every once in a while I get one where I, I say, well, maybe this is one I won't have to hang out my shingle that, well, this is one I really kind of got in control. And last summer when I was beginning the seeds of this sermon, I was saying, you know, I don't think I covet. I, I think of, one, of all the things, that's probably where I'm best. I should have known better. Uh, <laughs> you, you know, if you really want an Ill experience, I wish you all could give a sermon because inevitably God makes you live the sermon before you preach it. And this week has been something else. I, I think my friend is here. Anyway, I had a lunch with one of my friends. I was telling him at the end of lunch, you know, you seem to have so much, and then I just have to confess to you, sometimes I wish I was you. I wish I could have what you have. That was hard for me to say, 
But it's really true. I think that as we live in this community, depending if you look up or down, if you're always looking up, it seems like everybody has more than you do. And it can make you miserable. And I had to say, Lord, I've got the problem. It's hard to say I covet someone else's job, their personality, their appearance, their social gifts, their assets. I came up with a test that might help determine if we have a problem. Can I truly rejoice in someone else's attractive appearance when I look in the mirror and wonder what God had in mind when he made me? <laughs> can, can, can I celebrate someone else's financial success when I face endless financial hardships? It isn't fair. Can I rejoice in the success of someone else's children when my own caused me nothing but pain? Can I celebrate someone else's promotion when I feel trapped in my own job or I, I'm unemployed? Am I buying things on credit so I can have things now that I really can't afford? And maybe this is the most important one. Can I share the surplus God has provided for me by saying at this point for me and my family enough is enough and I'm not going to just keep building bigger barns for some projected need in the future. Can we say that? I think it's wise for us to recognize the destructive power of coveting. If we have the problem, it's a sin, and I've concluded the only way we can get rid of it is to go to God and confess it as I did this week, and then seek his power to heal a disease that otherwise will destroy our souls. So that leads us to a final thought. If we know we have the problem, how do we break free? Paul suggests something to us in that he said it won't happen instantly. Healing takes time. He uses the term learning. He, he suggested we have to learn to be content. He said, not that I complain of want, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content, which meant at some point he didn't know that yet. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and want. I can do all things in Christ who strengthens me. I'm happy to know that Paul must have been troubled by coveting and that over a period of time he learned not in his own strength but in Jesus Christ to conquer that disease. It's Jesus who can give us the spiritual power to learn to be content, but it will take time and it will take discipline. And a first step in learning to be content, I believe, is to choose relationships over things. That's that's a beginning vital point, that we'll live for relationships rather than things. And that means we'll reprioritize our time between work and relationships with people and with God. I'm concerned in this congregation of how so many of us are working up to 80 hours a week, some of you say, to the sacrifice of friendships and family. There's something wrong with that when we lay our body on the altar of any company that will sacrifice the most important things in life to achieve this thing called a career. I think we have to really deal with that in front of Jesus Christ. And then we need to control how much time we devote to thinking about things and money, calculating assets, deciding the next thing we're going to pursue or purchase versus thinking about God, thinking about people and their needs and how we can meet them. If you want something scary, calculate for one week the time you invest thinking about things and assets versus thinking about people and God and people's needs. 
it's very embarrassing. You see, coveting is very addictive. In a recent article in the San Jose Mercury, it was reported how billions of dollars in new wealth has been created in Silicon Valley. Billions! With so many IPOs and the incredible climb in the stock market. What's amazing in their survey, and this is not a, a, a Christian survey, this is the San Jose Mercury, it, it indicates charitable giving has not increased at all. With this huge climb in assets in Silicon Valley, charitable give, uh, giving is about the same as it was. What do we find out? Even when people get more, it doesn't lead to an urge to share more. There's no drive to reinvest back into the community from which we've taken the assets. We hang on to it, we build bigger barns, and in the process we starve our souls. And that's the disease that has this area in its grip, right from a secular newspaper. Jesus warns if we can't share wealth when he shares it with us, it will put us into bondage. People addicted to coveting things over relationships will become increasingly isolated from people. Unconsciously, people become a threat to what we have and we worship things and we don't want people to invade things. And we'll sacrifice friendships and some of us today are sacrificing a marriage over things. As we have an uncontrollable passion for more, be it career, house, money, anything that gets us our energy and time, it has us by the juggler vein of our soul and God says you're in danger and you need to come to me and I'll set you free. You know, as Christians living in our kind of environment, and I think we're probably one of the most infectious in the whole country when it comes to covetousness, we need daily help from our Lord. Not only from the catalogs that are on our coffee tables, but to the people and the surroundings and the environment, we are pressured with a mythological view of life, that the life consists in the abundance of things we possess. It doesn't, and we need daily help from the Holy Spirit to break that bondage. A second step toward learning to be content is to cultivate a spirit of gratitude. The psalmist asks, how can I repay the Lord for all his goodness to me? I'll sacrifice a thank offering to you and call on the name of the Lord. Reflecting on this incredible power of covetousness, I really do believe scripture when it says, if we offer gratitude, it will turn our focus away from things to the God who's provided so much. And then like an involuntary reaction, we're going to say, God, you've given it. I love you. You've given it to me to be a channel to reach others. And so I'm going to let go of it. I won't worship it. I will share it. One elder was talking about how he can give 99% of his time and energy to work and in the process, neglect his relationship with God, who's the source of his blessings. And he says, something's wrong. He spends more time reading the business section of the newspaper than in God's word and in prayer. And he says, something's wrong. You see, what gets our time, our energy, our attention gets us. It's real simple. Who is your God? Where do you put your time, energy, and attention? That's your God. I've reflected here this last few weeks of what's happened in our congregation, and I've concluded it sometimes takes a jolt to make us thankful for existing blessings and to rearrange priorities. Some of us have had a blip on the screen of our physical health. And talking with these people, every one of them were absolutely consistent. Their response was, you know, 
when I had this encounter with potential mortality. Suddenly, my attention turned to God and I became grateful just for life. And secondly, I became grateful for relationships. And all these other things that I'm pursuing all the time suddenly just didn't seem to matter. And I thought to myself, why do we have to wait for a jolt before we follow God's mandate to be grateful to Him and to give Him the priority through gratitude? Well, with all these things said, I, I want to challenge us as we enter the holiday season with the perspective, let's be grateful. Well, my wife and I were on a recent vacation. We took cabs every evening. One driver told us the first night how he had been driving for eight years and how much he enjoyed people and how grateful he was for his job and how he liked the hot climate. His spirit of contentment was contagious, and when we got out of the cab, it was easy to give him a tip. He was just a neat guy. The second driver, the next evening, uh, said something like this. As soon as we got in the cab, I hate my job. I can hardly wait to quit. I hate traffic. I hate the people I have to serve, they're so rude. I hate my boss who keeps pressing me for more, and I hate the heat. Two people doing exactly the same job, holding different perspectives. One found joy and contentment, the other was absolutely miserable. So here's the challenge. You have a choice of the perspective you're gonna choose for this holiday season. You can enter it, hounding God for more. You can look up and see all the things you don't have and feel God has cheated you. And you can feel miserable through covetousness throughout the season. Or you can look for ways to meet someone else's needs who has so much less than you do because you've decided enough is enough. I don't have to hound God for more. I'm already blessed beyond anything I deserve. That perspective will bring you contentment. That's what Jesus meant when he said, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And he said, if you build bigger barns here, you're a fool. And I don't want us as a church to be full of rich fools. And God will respond to this decision by giving us that priceless gift of contentment. Because that's what everybody's looking for in the shopping centers and in the offices. We're looking for contentment and it will be found in Jesus Christ and we will become contagious Christians when we can radiate a perspective that we don't need the things offered by the world to be content. We have Jesus and he's the secret. Because you see, it is true. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Let's go now to taking in into our lives, this priceless gift, Jesus. And as we have him in our life, so we find his gift of contentment. I want to remind you of the words of Paul the Apostle. He said, I delivered unto you as of first importance what I also received, how the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had broken it, he said, this is my body broken for you. And if you can remember, what that meant was Jesus, who had the riches of his heaven, came down here and gave up those riches, became poor so we could become rich. He was our model, and now we take him into our body to do through us what he did when he was here on earth. And then he, after he had supped, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, drink ye all of it. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you do show forth the Lord's death till he comes. And I might add today, we also show forth the only thing in life that's worth living for, and that's Jesus Christ. Let's bow in prayer.
Father, thank you that we can feed our souls with something that really satisfies today. The one food that can ease the hunger of restlessness inside of us. Even as we eat today, will you give us more of Jesus to satisfy the cravings inside of us that drive us crazy? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. But have you hold the bread as we distribute it to you and we'll eat it together. <laughs>